I want to share something with you just as we, as we open up. There was a, a young pastor, just came into a, a new district out in a rural area, and he was young, just out of seminary, and so this pastor was called to do a funeral for a gentleman who was, he's kind of a contentious fellow, really didn't have any friends or family, and so he was going to be buried in a pauper's cemetery, really no place to be around family, but just buried um, in a in a place where anyone would be buried. And so this pastor is driving, and he's not used to the area yet, and he's driving on country roads, and he's taking some wrong turns, and he, he gets lost. And eventually he gets there to the gravesite. And so he pulls up. He sees the, the backhoe there that dug the ditch. He sees three guys by the tree. Apparently he had missed the hearse already. It was there earlier. And, and he pulls up. He steps out, goes over to the, the gravesite, and he sees that the hearse had already left, and they already had the, the casket down in there. The lid was already in place. The vault lid was already over the casket. And so he says, well, I, I should just at least go ahead and, and present my, my homily and, and commend and commit this uh, individual to the ground. And, and so he preaches his heart out there, just with three guys there with, with shovels over to the side. And he's preaching his heart out, and he gives the best, best funeral sermon that he could at his young and inexperienced age. And then he, he does the last rites, and he, he walks away. And as he's walking away, he heard one of the guys of the tree say something. He said, man, he said, I've been digging septic tanks for 20 years, and never in my life have I seen anything like that. Wrong gravesite. <laughs> you know, when we, when we think about the work of God. There's a reason why Jesus said we must go two by two, at least two by two. The work of God is done in community. It's not done individually or simply alone. God has called us to be part of a community of faith that's about his business, moving forward with his mission. And so as we've been looking through different areas of our lives, you may have recognized that our series for the year, our actual theme for the year is Renewed. And we've talked about renewed within. We've talked about how we can be renewed with God in our spiritual walk. And this week we're trans, transitioning over to a new portion of this theme, which is renewed community. I believe God has called us here at Spring Meadows to be what is called a transformational community. What does that mean? It means it's a place where we, along with anyone else, can experience the transformation of Jesus Christ in our lives. We are called to be transformational community, not just for those who are here, but we exist for those who are not here yet. We exist for the community. We exist for the world. So when we talk about a transformational community, it's not really about us. It's about Jesus, and it's about his work and his mission. And so what does it mean to be a transformational community? Ray so eloquently, eloquently read earlier. I want to read it again with us. If you'll turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. This will be our theme verse for this series, Renewed Community, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. It says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you. And here's what Paul says, and I believe he's referring to what we believe is a transformational community of faith. He says, here's some descriptors. Walk worthy of the calling for which you have been called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Notice the descriptors of a transformational community. We see that we walk worthy of our calling, and that's through the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. With all humility and gentleness, long-suffering, forgiveness, bearing with one another in love, and love is the, the characterizing factor of a transformational community. And what's the result? Endeavoring to keep the unity of the faith in the Spirit, in the bond of peace. Are you getting the picture? What God is calling us to be, a, a, a brief snapshot. And then he goes on. We see the Spirit here bringing the bond of peace, the Holy Spirit, active, an active agent in the body of Christ. And then he says, there is one body, one Spirit, just as you are called in hope in your calling. And then he says, one Lord. What else does he say? One faith. One baptism, which we just saw today. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all, and in you all. We see here that in a transformational body of faith, a transformational community, 
that God is active. He's alive. He's moving through the Holy Spirit. But not just the Spirit, but all three persons of the Godhead are active agents in the community. All three are active for our salvation, for the movement of his purposes, for his mission. So what does a transformation of community truly look like? I believe the answer is found in the community of God and who he is, which is where we're going to go today. As far as for a word of prayer as we explore together. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we are here because we love you. We are here because of who you are. You are the God of the universe. And Father, we praise and thank you. Our hearts are lifted up to you. Lord, today as we spend some time in your word, we pray that our hearts of worship would continue to be transformed, to be lifted up to you and praising your name because of who you are and what you've done and what you're going to do in and through us. We thank you so much and we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. A transformational community recognizes, number one, that God is active, he's alive, he's moving. And as we just said, that the Godhead as a whole, all three are active agents in our salvation. Notice that they're all active at Jesus' baptism. This is important as we, as we look at this. At Jesus' baptism, probably the clearest picture of the, of the Trinity, of, of the Godhead, all at work together. You've read it before, Matthew chapter 3, 16, and 17. It says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved Son, whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. We read this last week regarding joy and celebration. But notice then what happens at our baptism. Jesus is our example. All three are active agents there. God speaks. The Spirit that sends Jesus is there as the agent of salvation, accomplishing what God has called him to do as our sacrifice as the Lamb. But notice Matthew 28, verse 19, what Jesus says. When he says the Great Commission to go, to be a transformational community that transforms our community, that transforms the world through the power of the Spirit. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of who? It says all nations, not just one part, but all nations, the entire planet, which was revolutionary at the time. This was groundbreaking. This was outside-the-box thinking. And so Jesus says all nations, not just the Jews, baptizing them in the name of who? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so when Chisani was baptized today, he was baptized in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All three of the Godhead were active and present today in Chisani's decision. Praise the Lord, Chisani. We're so thankful and we praise God together with you. But notice what it says in Evangelism, page 216. It says there are three living persons in the heavenly trio. The name of these three great powers, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, those who receive Christ, and here's a powerful promise, those who receive Christ by living faith are baptized. And then listen to this, what the Trinity does, the, the Godhead. And these powers, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, will cooperate with the obedient subjects of heaven in their efforts to live the new life in Christ. We're not alone, not just being drawn to Jesus, making decisions for Jesus, but in the life in Christ, all through our active agents in transforming us, in moving in us, empowering us, both to will and to do God's good pleasure. It's really all about Jesus. It's all about the Godhead. So how can we get a, a deeper understanding of a transformation of community that God has called us to be? I believe we need to examine just for a moment the Godhead itself to understand what this means for us and looking how the Godhead lives and breathes and acts on our behalf. I'd like to submit something to us as we continue. I'd like to submit that true renewal and spiritual growth can only happen in the context of community. Let me say that one more time. That true renewal and spiritual growth, transformation, can only happen in the context of community. In other words, not alone. We can be changed by ourselves, but true, lasting, and full transformation can only happen within the context of others. That's God's design. Ty Gibson wrote a book recently called The Heart of God, and he says something very profound in there. He says, there is a pure self-evident genius to the fact that the Bible identifies God as three. And here's where we begin this exploration into the, the person of God. God is three, and he says this. He said, this God who is three, but yet are one. 
he says the Bible identifies God as three who are one. And he says, let's think through the logic of the number three. And here's what he proposes, that three is the minimum value of love. And then right now you're saying, no, 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 that's not right. It's two. Two has to be the minimum, minimum value of love because you found your soulmate. You found that person you're going to spend the rest of your life with. Or you're still maybe looking. But you've, maybe you found that person. You know, I'm fine where I'm at. It's just us, just the two of us. And we're good. So how can this guy say that the minimum factor of true love is three? Why wouldn't it be one? Well, it's obvious because, as I just shared, you could lock yourselves up in a room until forever comes and you'll never know the meaning of love, true love. Love always requires another first and foremost. And by the way, any religion that says that God is only one individual cannot call God a God truly of love. And here's why. They may call him a God of compassion, a God of righteousness, even a God of mercy. But if he is eternal, somebody has had to be with him the entire time in order for him to truly be love as he has described himself. What can we find out about this God of the Bible, the God of the universe? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. Just a brief little survey. You've read this. This is the first verse in the entire Bible written by Moses. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the very first verse of the entire scripture, we see God being described as the creator. And that name for God, as you probably know, is Elohim, which is a plural noun. In other words, it is a a plurality of beings who operate as one. It is a a plural name. So we say we have one God, it it is even by name and by structure and grammar, multiple beings as one God. Genesis 1.27, they clarify this when they say, let us make man in our image. This is God conversing amongst themselves. But what, what, we, what, what do we do with the Shema? That, that Hebrew verse in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? Is one. Many religions have taken this and said, no, no, there's only one being in the God of God. There's no God. There's no three in one. There's one being. The Bible is clear here. Not so fast. How do we know? If we took this verse alone, we still couldn't come to that conclusion. Instead of choosing, and Moses did this very, very intentionally, Moses could have chosen any word to signify that oneness. But instead of choosing the word yakid, which means one or the sense of only or alone, Moses chooses the plural word akad, which means one among others in a joined shared oneness. Moses uses even the wording that signifies that this is one among others. God is more than just one being. We see this word again described in Genesis 2 verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one or ikad, that that plurality, two beings who share a oneness of flesh. The same word describing the Godhead. There was a a little girl who attended a wedding for the first time and she's watching the whole procession. She sees the bride come down and just really taken back at the beauty and and the, the awesome dress that she was wearing. And she goes, Mommy, why is the bride wearing a white dress? And and the mom says to her, Well, because that white dress is a symbol of happiness. And she goes, and that white dress means that she is happy. This is the happiest day of her life. And the little girl thinks for a second, she goes, Well, mommy, how comes the groom's wearing a black suit? <laughs> Some of us didn't wear black. It doesn't mean anything, ladies. It doesn't really. Happiest day of our lives. Happiest day of our lives. But we see this oneness being exemplified in Scripture. So it's clear that only one cannot be love. But what about two? What about two? Because that's how we usually signify love. Boy meets girl, fiance and fiance, husband and wife, friend and friend. You become besties. You, you're, you're a dude and you, you find this friend who has all the same interests. You love hanging out. And there's like what we call bromance where you just want to hang out all the time. And so you're, you're, you have these best friends. And it seems like it's, it's one of the best things in life. But the problem is there can be a problem with only two. There's a saying in English, and you've heard this before, even though you may not recognize the first part because of a TV show from the 70s. It says, two's company. You know the show 
kind of jump, skip that part. But the saying really goes, two's company, but what? Three is a crowd. So it's just the two of us, right? That's all that matters. It's all we need. We don't need that, any, any third party coming in and messing things up as, as besties or, or whoever we are hanging out with. So what does that mean when we say it in, in English? It means the two of us were doing just fine before you came along, so get out. That's, that's what that means. <laughs> Three's a crowd. We don't need you here. I remember when I was young, I had a friend named John. He was my best friend in school. And we used to hang out, go to each other's house all the time, birthdays, get-together, sleepovers. And we were just riding high. We were best friends. We were, we were bros back in elementary school. And then I remember somebody moved into town, a new family. And then all of a sudden, a young boy named Ray, who was our age, in our grade, comes into town. And Ray comes, and he was cool. We liked Ray. And so we both started hanging out with Ray, and Ray became our friend. Well, what we realized is that Ray wasn't just my friend, but he was also John's friend, even though we were friends together. And when Ray went to John's house and I wasn't invited for the first time, that was disturbing. Because before that, it was just me and John. But now Ray's there, and Ray's, Ray's getting all up in my friendship, even though I'm friends with Ray too. What's going on? So you can see the complication that takes place when we have that third wheel coming in. But it's a perfect example of what we're talking about. Why is three the minimum factor of love? Because we look at two, we have this selfish bent within us. And it's important to understand this when we talk about transformational communities. How does the Godhead model a transformational community to us today? What does that mean for us? First of all, we look at it in function. We read this verse, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Elohim, the Godhead, were all present. And then it specifies in verse 2, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The second verse in all Scripture, we have the Holy Spirit being, being pointed out, being identified right there, hovering like an eagle. The same word is used for an eagle, hovering over its nest hovering over the face of the waters. Job chapter 26, verse 13, he says, by his spirit, he adorned the heavens. We see that the Holy Spirit is an active agent in creation. John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, we're breezing through these real quick. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So God and the Son were both also present in the beginning. The same verbiage used for the Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning. At creation was the Word. The Father was there, the Son was there, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. All things were made, notice that word, through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. All three active agents in creation. But we don't stop there because we see all three are active agents in redemption. John chapter 3, verse 16, the verse we all know, in verse 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him, what? Might be saved. John chapter 16, verse 7 also says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Jesus says this, It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. And of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. We can say amen to that. Because of Jesus, the Holy Spirit would come. He'd go to heaven. He would send another helper like himself, but who could be everywhere at once who would bring the good news of salvation to the hearts of all men. And so we see that God is the active agent in creation, but also redemption. All three are active, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So what are their roles? I like to compare them to a a building project. And they're far beyond that. We cannot put God in a container or or just try to describe him one way. But I like to think about these, these descriptions And so, if we were to look at this as a building project, whether it be creation or redemption, the Father would be like the architect. He is the one, and the word from 
from Scripture always is from the Father. Jesus comes from the Father. The Spirit sent from the Father. He is the architect, the designer of our salvation. The plan that God put in place, the Father is there. And so as we look at this church, it didn't happen by accident. As a matter of fact, Russell Goliath was part of this, right? He and his firm helped draw out the plans for this church, this beautiful building that we're in today. Happy birthday, Russell, by the way. We won't say how old he is today. It's his birthday. We're not trying to blow your head up and saying you're, you're God, but you did a beautiful job here with the design. But it doesn't happen by accident. And so God is very intentional as he is designing, as he is carrying forth his work. And so things come from God, and then we see things are through the Son. Creation happens through the Son. He is the Word. And so the Father's the architect. The Son speaks. And so we can, 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 uh, we can compare the sun to kind of like the foreman. If you're looking at a job site, there's the architect. They draw the plans. They provide all the necessary things. And then there's the foreman who makes it happen, who's there on site to carry out the work. And so Jesus is there. He is on site. He comes down to this earth as God in the flesh to carry forward and complete the work of salvation on our behalf. He's the foreman. He's directing. He's living. He's not just the foreman who, who wears the white hard hat and tells everyone what to do. No, Jesus comes down and he's in the trenches with his people. The Bible says that he is the author and the finisher of our faith. He who began the good work will be faithful to complete it. Jesus as our foreman, as the one accomplishing our salvation. By the way, the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus himself, there's never been a project that he's began and hasn't finished. Hallelujah. What he's began in your life, he's going to finish. And the Bible says that he does all things well. Amen? He started something in your life. He's going to bring it to completion. He's not going to walk off the job site because you messed up and you insulted him. He's going to keep with you. I worked in a construction family. I saw people walking off all the time. You say one wrong word, boom, I'm out of here. That's not Jesus. He stays with us. He sees the work to completion. He sees the work to completion. He makes all things beautiful in his time. And then we see the Holy Spirit. The Word speaks and the Holy Spirit moves forward. And we see that Word by the Holy Spirit. The, the Spirit is the laborer who's out there doing, doing the work, drawing hearts, convicting of righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus. You know, this past week, I went to Advent Health for my second shot. And no symptoms quite yet. I'm just a little tired, so if I collapse here, you'll know what happened. I'm feeling pretty good there right now. <laughs> so, so, got my shot. But I, I got to say this. When I went there yesterday, I noticed it the first time. But this time was even more. I just took a moment to observe how finely tuned that operation was there at the airport. You get there, there's greeters. At every stage, there's someone to greet you, to direct you to the next point. Some people's job is just to say hi. You know, we have greeters here. That's a huge and an awesome job. It makes people feel welcome. Sometimes we say, oh, that's, that's not much. No, no, that makes all the difference in the world. That's the first line of showing the love of Jesus to someone who walks in. And so there's greeters there. They direct you to this line, that line, through this path. And within two minutes, I was in there getting my shot, filling out one piece of paper, boom, I was in there. And out, and then I had to wait 10 minutes till they made sure I didn't collapse on a chair. Some, some kind of a bad reaction. But I was like, man, this is, this is like a fine-oiled machine. But it also made me think about this church. This church is a church, since I've been here, that I've observed where everybody is active. So when we have a project, when we have a, a gathering, everybody pitches in. It's a beautiful thing about Spring Meadows. Everybody serves. I know some people are here today because of that very dynamic they came here once, they saw that, they said, I want to be part of this church. Because this is a church who all gets involved. They're all interested in the mission. They're all interested in participating in what's happening. God has called us, he's called us to be part of this transformational community. So what is the key factor in the Godhead? What makes the difference? The key difference that we need to learn from, that we should identify me as an individual, all of us, is that the unity of the Trinity is the fruit of mutual submission. 
Not one is lording it over another to do or to give orders and to do exactly what the other person said. John chapter 5, verse 22, we, we see this. We see the Father even submits to the Son. The Father gives, gives all judgment to the Son. He glorifies the Son. When you glorify somebody, you step, take a step back and you put somebody else in the limelight. God glorifies the Son, subjugates himself to Jesus' glory. But then what happens also? The Son submits to the Father. Jesus says, I have come to do the will of my Father. I don't do anything apart from my Father's will. And then even the Holy Spirit subjugates himself, submits to the Father and the Son. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will glorify him and the Father and will only move as directed. There is a mutual submission. Mutual submission is a secret to genuine unity anywhere, in marriage, in a church, in a transformational community. When I place my interests above somebody else's, we no longer become transformational. But when I place your needs and your interests above mine, that's where true love and submission and transformation takes place. When we love sacrificially, we are portraying a picture of God's love to one another. That's why the Bible says, Jesus said that the world will know we're his disciples by how we do what? How we love one another. So what are the greatest challenges of transformational communities? Number one is pride. What holds us back from becoming transformational communities? We don't stay in our lane. We see what God's doing in somebody else's life and we say, man, I should be doing that. And so we try to step in, interfere, maybe take over. And so we, we have a hard time accepting where God has placed us. That's what happened in heaven with Satan. He, he felt that he wasn't being acknowledged or recognized quite enough. And so he steps outside of his lane where he shouldn't have. And he begins to, to spread rumors and dissent about the management. You know, God's not being fair, all these things. And he convinces one-third of the angels to follow him. But there's also indifference. This past week, my wife was in a car accident. It was minor, she was okay, but her car was damaged. And so <clears throat> within this accident, she was on the phone with me. I was like, what's happening? She said, well, the guy just hit me. I think he just took off. I thought it was a hit and run. And thankfully, he did pull off in a parking lot. He had to push his car. He went over there. Our car was drivable. And so all the, all the time on the phone, I'm talking to Miriam. And, <clears throat> and so the police come, do the reports, interview both of the, of the drivers. And it was obviously this guy's fault. He ran a red light, just hit my wife in the front of the car, and boom. And so we get the police report home and <clears throat> come to find out the guy doesn't have insurance. Oh, I'm like, no, you've got to be kidding me. The police goes, yeah, we cited him, but there's no insurance. And so, <clears throat> so we see the report. I, I, called, I called his insurance that he was supposed to maybe have previous. And they said, oh, no, he, he's on here. So I was like, yeah, that's great news. And so they said, we'll have our adjuster call you. So things start brightening up, right? And so we'll have our adjuster call you tomorrow. They'll schedule a repair shop. Wonderful. Things are taken care of. So I, one day goes by, two days go by, haven't heard anything. And then I call and I say, I haven't heard anything from the adjuster. And they go, you know what? We just sent you a letter. It just so happens that right soon before the accident, his, he let his coverage run out. So, so it went from sorrow to joy and now back to sorrow. And so now we remain an uncovered driver who's hit us and now we are stuck with the repair. Our, our insurance will, will help. But what happens is many times we're just indifferent. When we make decisions that affect others, sometimes we fail to recognize the impact our lives, our decisions have on others. But when we live a life that is living for Jesus, when we live a life that is focused on others instead of ourselves, we're constantly thinking how our lives are impacting others for the good. And even the negative, what we don't do, how that will affect different people's circumstances. The third thing, real quickly, is what we call triangulation. That's, that's very proper for a, a group of at least three. Many times we allow triangulation in friendships and parenting. If you don't know what I'm talking about, think about what your kids do. They don't go to you for everything, but they go to your spouse. Because why? Because they know you have a weakness in your armor that your other spouse doesn't. That's called triangulation. So they'll go to the weakest point to try to get what they want. Right? 
Have you experienced that? You've probably done that. And so they know dad won't do this or mom won't do this. So they go to mom or the other, the other spouse to get what they need. We see that with our kids. We see it in friendships sometimes. We see it even at work. <clears throat> you know, it's interesting. Um, the other morning, I, uh, I've been going to exercise with one of our members here, one of my friends, early in the morning. And afterwards, I always try to pick up some oatmeal at one of a, a fast food establishment. I'm not going to name it at this point. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to name fast food establishments anymore. Um, so I, I pick up some oatmeal. And so I usually go and pick it up. And, and I went this one time, the one closer to the gym where I go to. And wouldn't you know it, the drive throughs closed. And so I had to go to one further away. That was one day. The next day, I go back again. drive throughs closed again. They say, sorry, we're having malfunctions. Okay, go to the one further away. I'm in a rush. I'm, I'm short on time. And so third day comes. They have the oatmeal, but they don't have the toppings for it. Oh, you got to be kidding. That's like the best part of the oatmeal. Like, come on. So they gave it to me. I'm like, all right. And they threw like a packet of whole apples. I had to slice them myself. That's okay. So, so then the following day, I, I go again. There's always something going on. And then they didn't have any oatmeal or they didn't have a certain deal. I was like, forget it. I'm not going back here. So I go back. I, I drive further from then on to this other place. And I went to the window. And I said, you know what? I'm going to thank these individuals in this one because they always have what I need. They're always open. And there's never anything that goes wrong here. And so I go up to the window and I said, I just want to thank you guys. The lady, the lady at the window, I said, I just want to thank you so much for being here. I said, you guys always have what I need. You're never closed. The drive through is always working. You have all these deals that the other place doesn't have. And I said, I've been going to this other place for a few days. I said, I'm never going back there. It was horrible. Nothing's ever right there. And the lady smiles at me. She goes, oh, really? She goes, well, that's, that's interesting. That's a corporate store. We're a franchise. And so she was excited that corporate wasn't, wasn't holding up, that they had them beat. And then I drove away and I thought, hold on, what, what did I just do there? Why is it that in affirming this restaurant that I had to put down the other one? I thought, why did I do that? I had to put down the one to magnify this one. And so many times we do that to each other. That's part of triangulations. We go to somebody else. And in trying to, to lift them up, encourage them, sometimes we try to we tear down another to magnify that, to make them feel good, or maybe to make ourselves feel good. We need to learn to affirm people without comparing people. That happens in families. It's destructive. We can affirm people without comparing people. Amen? I know we don't do that here at Spring Meadows. But just in case, whatever crop up, we know, right? Amen. What's the opposite of triangulation? It's when we come right to the person that we need to talk to instead of talking to a third party and going around. That's what God calls us to do. As a matter of fact, uh, this just happened this past week, and there was an a, a intervention with, with some people who care about me here at this church. They, they came to me. They said, Pastor Brian, they said, there's something we've we got to tell you. I said, what is it? They said, well, it's your suit. I said, what do you mean? They said, <laughs> they said you have both buttons buttoned all the time. And they said, that's not, that's not right. You have a two-button suit, you've got to leave the bottom button, bottom button unbuttoned. <laughs> so today, as you see me here, this, this bottom button being unbuttoned is a product of somebody who avoided triangulation. And I'm going to go right to Pastor Brian because we care about him. I'm going to tell him, button, unbutton that bottom button. Praise the Lord. Thank you. Thank you for letting me know that. <laughs> it's better if somebody tell you things than to have... It go around and have everyone else know about it, not you. But I've come towards the end here, but I want to share with you something very profound that's really <clears throat> changed my view. It's not changed, but it's, it's really accentuated my view of God as I've never seen him before. In Ty Gibson's book that I mentioned earlier on page four, he says something that's, that's very, very interesting. He talks about three being the minimum factor of love. He says, and yet a third person is actually what is best for the relationship. That goes counter to everything we think about relationships. The third person's always the problem. In marriage, you never want the third person in the relationship, right? That's, that's the bad thing. That's where you're going off the tracks. Or friendship. It's, it's coming in and trying to, 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 to disrupt things. But notice what he says here. He says, here is the reason why it's actually the best for the relationship, counter to what we might think or believe. He says, because if the third person is accepted, 
then self-centeredness will have, have to give way to a more selfless quality of love. Now you not only have to receive the love of your first friend, you also have to accept that your first friend is also friends with another. Ow, Ray and John all over again. You also have to accept that your first friend is friends with the other. You also have to accept a divided interest that is not exclusively focused on you. That's tough. In the book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis says something in relationship to this. C.S. Lewis, the uh, apologist and theologian, wrote this in his book, The Four Loves. He says he was part of a group called the Inklings. They were a group of writers at the time, and you might recognize at least one of these. It was C.S. Lewis, and he was in this circle of friends, this tight circle of friends. They had a literary bromance going on here. It was J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, close friends, and also was Charles Williams, a poet, playwright, and theologian as well. This tight-knit group of writers. And one day, as years went on, Charles Williams dies unexpectedly in 1945. C.S. Lewis, in grieving the death in that inner circle, and he records this in his book, here's what he says. He says, in each of my friends, this is profound, he says, in each of my friends there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles Williams is dead, he says, I shall never again see Ronald's or Tokian's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, he says, I have less of Ronald. Lewis was saying that it took a community to know an individual. Wow. (laughs) It takes a community to know an individual. How much more would this be true of Jesus? Three is not a crowd. You need three so that all can be brought into their fullest. You know, when I think about this, I think about my wife and I. We were married for seven years, and we never thought we'd have kids. It was out off our radar. Uh, It wasn't supposed to be able to happen. But then we found hope. We had some friends who had kids, a child, and they said, hey, there's some places that can help. We, we realized that. And so suddenly we go to this place and we realize there is hope that we can have a child, our own child, amazingly. And so this became an exciting thing for us. We never thought about it. We hadn't even considered it, but now it was becoming for real. And then Miriam becomes pregnant with our son Brandon, miraculously, I believe. And we have him. But all those years, seven years, we still talk about this. It was just us. We do it. We want to go out to eat, go to the mall, hang out. Up north, there's not a lot to do. It's always when it's cold. So you just do and go, go places like that. And so it was just us, and we were happy. But then Brandon comes along. <laughs> this, third, this third person in the relationship. But as I read what C.S. Lewis wrote, it made me realize something, is that The Miriam that I knew was the one that I truly loved and I still love. But it wasn't until Brandon came into the picture that a whole new side of Miriam came into being. This mother, this this awesome parent that I've been able to witness and observe, this, this protective person who cares for this child. There's dynamics of Miriam that I would have never known or seen or appreciated if not for Brandon coming into our lives. And I'm blessed to be able to experience that. And so instead of Brandon taking less time, taking all of our time from each other, he has brought more out about us and from us as a family. Then Lewis makes this connection to God. In this friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no one can number, increases the fruition each of us has of God. For every soul seeing him in his or her own way doubtlessly communicates that unique vision to all the rest. So when we experience God, we experience him as who he is to us. We are a worldwide church that forms a beautiful mosaic of Jesus Christ. We're the body of Jesus. It takes a community to reveal Jesus to the world. It's not just you. It's not just me. It is all of us that reveal Jesus. Amen? 
We are all called to be a piece or a picture of this mosaic of Jesus. There are non-negotiables about who Jesus is and who God is. But just because somebody doesn't see God exactly as I do or experience him in every facet exactly like I do, we must be careful about shaking the dust off our feet towards them. The picture from C.S. Lewis reminds us that God actually chooses a multitude of perspectives and portrays himself. God is a finely cut diamond with seven and a half billion facets today, and he says, I want them all. We need an open perspective to understand this God who has loved us with an everlasting love. We need to learn how to embrace differences, to learn from them. We must learn constructive dialogue rather than destructive debate. We must learn how to disagree righteously and lovingly. We must learn how to distinguish between preferences and principles that are biblical instead of modeling the spirit of the broken culture around us. God calls us to be lights that shine in the darkness of this age. And they will only know that we are Christ's disciples by how we love one another. How did Ty put it? The minimum numeric factor value of love is three. But the moment there are three, each recipient must also humbly defer attention to the third party. And each one must occupy the position of the third person to the other two. Pure selflessness can now occur by virtue of the fact that each one must love and be loved with both an exclusive and divided interest. If the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were not eternally coexistent, it could not be said that they with any coherence that God is love. Two people form a couple, but three people form a community. And that's why we are here today. We're the community of faith. And God has called us to be a transformational community. And I'm reminded of Ecclesiastes 4.12, though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. God has ingrained us into the, the threefold existence of himself in Jesus Christ, And now we have a place in him, the very right hand of God. What a blessing and a promise. They are forever three. The minimum of true love is always and always will be three. And it's found in God and God alone. Let us model the community that God has portrayed to us in his very existence and being today. And may we do it to each other and to the community around us. Amen. Church family, let's sing of that love of Christ, our, our cornerstone, our salvation. me.
find our hope, our strength, our past, our present, our future, all rest in him. We thank you that, that you, our Father, the Son Jesus, and your Holy Spirit, all three active agents in our redemption, in our future. Though we pray that we would just be open to reflect you as the many facets of the body of Christ to a dying world around us. Help us to be fully surrendered. Help this community, this loving, friendly community, to also be a transformational community where our lives, as they have been, are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And the communities around us are being transformed because of your love flowing through our lives. May we be a picture of Jesus everywhere we go as we are members and subjects of your kingdom. Lord, bless us as as we leave this place. Use us this week. Bless our families. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a reminder, there will be elders up front. If any of you would like to have special prayer, there will be some elders waiting right up here to pray with you. So please make your way to the front if you'd like special prayer. Also, as a reminder, we have deacons that will be standing at the doors collecting tithes and offerings if you so wish to give them in that manner. God bless. We love you. Have a great week.